This morning, I want us to look at Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. If you're using a Bible from the Purack, you want to turn to page 946. As we jump into another letter from the Apostle Paul, let me kind of give you some sense of where we are in the book of Romans. One of the purposes that Paul is writing to the church at Rome is that he's wanting to develop a partnership with them. And to do so, he is taking great lengths to explain the gospel that he preaches. And at points he calls it his gospel. And that's not a way of Paul saying that he innovated this gospel, but it was a gospel that was given to him, entrusted to him as a steward that then he is bringing across the ancient world and planting churches, preaching this gospel. And so he's wanting to explain, and in doing so, he recognizes that there may be objections to the gospel he is presenting. And so in chapters 9 through 11 of the book of Romans, he is dealing with a pretty formidable objection in the mind of many. And that objection is, well, if this is the gospel, if this is the power of God unto salvation, why did so many of your contemporary Jews, Paul, refuse it and not believe? You may be thinking that's a good objection. I never thought of that objection. Well, you could spend this week, you can read the entirety of his argument explaining God's purpose and the Jews' rejection of the gospel in Romans 9 through 11. Particularly in this section, he has been laboring here previously, you could almost say beginning in verse 5, all the way through the end of this chapter. We're focused on verses 14 through 17 this morning. The main point he is laboring to make is this. The preaching of the gospel is the power of God for salvation despite the Jews' rejection of its proclamation. So that is the point and theme of the passage. We will read it here in a moment. Before we do so, let us ask for God's help in prayer. Please join me in prayer again. Heavenly Father, you have spoken we ask that now we would receive the word that you have given. You have spoken through your son the living word. So we ask that you would give your spirit to us this morning to see the glory of Christ. We ask, come thou incarnate word, gird on thy mighty sword, our prayer attend, come and thy people bless. Give thy word success. Spirit of holiness on us descend. In Jesus' name. Hear the word of God from Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 14 through 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? 
as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. I didn't even bother to count because I'm pretty sure that nearly 99.9% of the Sundays that I have been alive for, I have heard a sermon in my life. Some of my earliest memories are sitting in a pew in church, hearing preaching. But as a church kid, now as a pastor, occasionally there are times in my life where I had to recalibrate my mind and heart to what am I doing while preaching is occurring. I really remember as a kid that there are times I'd hear the sermon as a young child and would be moved and my faith would be encouraged, be called to repentance and convicted and renew my resolve to live for Jesus. And then there were other times where my mind was somewhere else, particularly in the fall when the preacher would go long and there was a noon kickoff. Now, the particular church I went to, we didn't just have closing songs. This will give you a hint of the former church tradition I grew up in. We'd also have altar calls. And so the combination of a long sermon and a long altar call meant you weren't picking up the game to the third quarter and there was no DVR or rewinding or watching it. And I remember at some point striking some sort of compromise with my mom that once the sermon was over, if it was past noon, I could take the keys and go sit in the hot car and listen to the game on the radio until everyone else left church. And I'd have this urge to, as the sermon went on and on, to start when I grabbed the keys sooner and sooner. And my parents had to rebuke, correct. Whether you agree with their compromise or not, they did try to help me recalibrate my heart and mind as a young disciple to receive, to sit under joyfully the preaching of God's Word. The preaching of God's Word is essential. It's an essential element of gathered worship. You cannot call it worship. God's Word is not proclaimed. It is essential to the Christian life. Because through the exposition of God's Word, we come to understand the God who otherwise is transcendent and incomp incomprehensible in His will and His way to our finite minds. Creation testifies that there's a God. It speaks. There's general revelation. But it is His Word that most clearly lays out who the God of creation is, and how we can know him and enjoy him for eternity. And so therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that it is Satan's 
prime strategy to distract us from the hearing of God's word. And that when we hear it, it's a prime strategy of his for him to twist it. It's been his strategy from the very beginning. Remember what he told Eve in the garden? Did God actually say? He hasn't updated his methods. He is still attacking the preaching of God's word, trying to undermine it, trying to deceive and lie. Think, is that really what the Lord said? Therefore, we often need to intentionally recalibrate our hearts and our minds to the purpose, but not just the purpose, the power of preaching. So I want us to see three things from our text. In verses 14 and 15, and then verse 17, I want us to be reminded of the role preaching plays in salvation. The role preaching plays in salvation. Then in verse 16, I want us to consider the evidence of faithful preaching. The evidence of faithful preaching. And then lastly, in verse 14, we will return to the beginning of the passage. And I want us to think about the one who speaks through preaching. The one who speaks through preaching. What is the role that preaching plays in salvation? Well, the preaching of the gospel is the power of God for salvation. We see it reaffirmed here in this passage. It is the means by which saving faith is produced and strengthened. Thinking particularly of verse 17 and the clarity of the statement there. The preaching of the word produces and strengthens saving faith within the believer. Now what do we mean by means? You may have heard a preacher talk about God using means to accomplish his purpose. What does means mean? Well, by a mean, we mean an action by which a result is brought about. God has given the church a mission with an end and an objective, and he's also given the means by which that objective is to be reached. The goal is that those who don't know Christ would hear of his life, death, and resurrection so that they might call upon him for salvation. Look back at verse 13 in Romans chapter 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here he is coming to a concluding statement about laying out the case in this section of the book about how salvation is by faith and not pursued by righteous works. That we need the righteousness of an, another and it is only received by faith, receiving what Christ has done. And it's a reality in the life of the sinner when they call on the name of the Lord. So call and believe and trust are synonymous here. The apostle is quoting from Joel 2.32, the prophet, affirming that the gospel that he preaches has always been the gospel. There it is in the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. He's reiterating that if anyone is to come in a, into a saving relationship with a holy and perfect God, it must be through the instrument of faith. 
But how does faith come? Well, he lays out the means by which God ordinarily gives saving faith in a series of rhetorical questions. He begins at the end and then reverses to where it starts. We'll begin with the end where he does in verse 14. Look back there. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him of whom they have never heard? Sinners must believe on Jesus to be saved. Sinners cannot believe on him unless they hear about him. It's this simple, straightforward affirmation that saving faith comes from intelligible proclamation, meaning that words are used to communicate a message. Saving faith does not come from mysticism. And you may say, well, I really don't know too many people who are pursuing salvation through mysticism. Well, this is a definition of mysticism. Maybe you could recognize maybe a tendency in your heart or in others. Mysticism is the idea is that there is some spiritual knowledge or apprehension that you can attain, but doing so by skipping the mind, apart from the intellect. It's a, a feeling of some sort. Or maybe that isn't the bent of yourself or someone else you know. Some may seek some spiritual truth through the route of asceticism. That they would say self-discipline, the starving and fasting of oneself. If you do these things, deny oneself in such a way, then you will reach a, a higher enlightenment and come to some sort of truer knowledge of the great being or of God himself. No, that's not the way that saving faith comes or grows. Our self-discipline and self-denial is a response to faith. That having heard the Savior's call, then we deny ourselves and take up his cross and follow him. But we do so in faith. It is to be an expression of an intelligible then further in our section in verse 14, how are they to hear without someone preaching? I mean, quite simply stated, sinners cannot hear about him unless someone preaches to them. Now, the apostle uses a distinct word here. The word is not interchangeable for personal witness. There's a different word that is used in the New Testament to talk about the believer's witness to someone. We might say more of a one-on-one -on -one, where you would share the gospel with someone. This word, caruso, is a very distinct word. It had a very clear meaning. No one would have confused caruso for a one-on-one -on -one private conversation. It was the work of the herald who was sent with a message to be declared publicly. That is the word, and that's why it's saying, how can they hear without someone preaching? This is what the apostle is saying. Here are the means by which sinners come to trust in Jesus through the public proclamation of the gospel. So it's a good reminder, because quite often people today may say, why does church feel so much like a monologue? Isn't that antiquated? Isn't that a way that they used to do discourse and 
pass along ideas? Couldn't there be more of a dialogue? Well, our worship as a whole is dialogical, where we bring ourselves, our persons, offering as living sacrifices to God. And then in corporate worship, we offer our prayers to Him, our songs to Him. But the accusation is correct. Our liturgy is heavy on hearing, and rightfully so. Because what's most important in worship is not what we think about God, but what God has told us about Himself. And so any dialogue is to be us then repeating back to God what He has revealed to us in His Word, His glory, His goodness, His ways, as we see it in the Scripture. And then in verse 15, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? Someone cannot preach unless they are sent. Now, cannot is what Paul is forbidding. We would see today that probably we'd say someone shouldn't preach because we see many examples of those who have taken upon themselves uh, to the office of, of preacher and pastor and to gather to themselves and much harm has been done through the name of Christianity because those who've taken the office of preacher of the gospel but not done so in the proper way. That's why the doctrine of ordination is a good thing. It is not to create a barrier between you and the teaching elder and the pastor. It is to protect you from those who have not been sent, those who have not been examined, those who have not been properly trained to open God's word. It is a blessing and a service to the church that we have the doctrine of ordaining people to the work. It is a wonder that God would work this way. I'm sure you've thought of it before. Why didn't he just write the gospel in the sky? Why didn't he just send an angel but it is the glory of God and the great privilege of the church that he would send heralds. Part of it, the meaning of a herald is that you are not going with your message. You've been given one and you were only a faithful herald if you deliver the message you've been given. And this is the means. Calvin, John Calvin said, the gospel does not fall from the clouds like rain by accident no, it is brought by the hands of men to where God has sent it. And so we say, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. As the Apostle Paul quotes in verse 15, quoting Isaiah 52.7. There's an important clarification, and we can't spend a lot of time on it. And it may cause uh, some questions, but... What we see here in Romans 10 is that this is the ordinary way saving faith comes. What about those who are incapable of hearing the outward ministry of God's Word? So not the question of, what about those who have not heard? That's a different question. Those who have not heard 
general revelation testifies to them that there is a God and they are not right with that God. And they will be judged and held accountable to that knowledge. And apart from the preaching of the gospel and the receiving and calling on the name of the Lord, there is no wider hope outside of Jesus. And that is why many times we come to this passage of Scripture as an impetus for mission, rightly so, as a true and proper application to this passage. So I'm not asking the question about those who haven't heard, the question of those who cannot hear. The Westminster Confession wrestles with this question in the chapter on effectual calling. Effectual calling is the work by which the Spirit gives you ears to hear the gospel. And so in that chapter, in paragraph 3, it speaks of infants dying in infancy and those who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. And we can't speculate, we can't say more than this. That God has his elect and that he can save in Christ through the Spirit. We see in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, John the Baptist in the womb is filled with the Holy Spirit. We see in verse 41 of chapter 1 of Luke that when Mary comes to greet her cousin Elizabeth and John the Baptist is in the womb of his mother Elizabeth and he hears Mary's voice, he responds, he leaps in the womb. And we can't draw too much from it. This is a special occurrence in redemptive history. But it does lead us to believe that God is capable of saving by his Spirit in Christ those who can't hear but we shouldn't count on it. Not for one moment when we look at a lost and dying world. Why not? Because he's given us the means and shown us the means by which he will bring sinners out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. So, faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. Saving faith comes from without and then enters in. It does not come from within. It comes from without. But then it is embraced in the heart of one who's been born again. There at verse 17 at the end, it gives an important clarification. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, the apostle is not saying that there are some words in the Bible that produce faith, the words that just explicitly talk about Christ. No. What I think he's meaning is that understanding the scriptures testify to him from beginning to end. And so there is a way to become familiar with the Bible to be able to deal with different passages, but if it doesn't point you to Christ, then you've missed the point of the passage. And so it is the word of Christ 
that he says produces faith. As one scholar pointed out, it's not a general word about God's goodness and kindness. No, it is the specific understanding that all of the scriptures culminate in the giving of the Son of God in the place for sinners and his resurrection. The message of the cross of Christ. Dear Saint, in here today, are you battling unbelief? Don't be wooed by gimmicks, just trying something different to recapture some sense of a lost love or faith in God. Don't look within, but go to the source, the Word of God, the Word of the cross. Place yourself in the way of faithful preaching that proclaims the Son of God. Are you praying for an unbeliever? Sow the seed of the gospel. Share with them the word of God. Be a personal witness to them. But you should not crumple under the pressure to close the deal and produce faith. That's not your job in evangelism. One-to-one personal evangelism. It is to tell others of Christ, to point them to the word, invite them to come worship with Christians where they can hear the gospel proclaimed. It is the work of the Spirit to produce faith through the word. Preaching is the means by which ordinarily saving faith is produced and strengthened. It should dictate the life of the church and the mission of the church. Part of what we're doing later today when we head over to Kalamazoo to celebrate uh, Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church becoming a particular church is that saying, God did it again. He sent a preacher, gathered sinners who are now trusting in Christ. And here is another church to proclaim the good news of salvation by grace alone in Christ alone, through faith alone. Next, look back at verse 16 in Romans chapter 10. Let's consider the evidence of faithful preaching. You may say, I don't know if that's the verse I would appeal to for the evidence of faithful preaching. Maybe I would have looked at verse 17. Well, verse 17 does point to the evidence of faithful preaching. One of the evidence of faithful preaching is that it will produce saving faith. Also, another evidence is that it will be rejected. It will be refused. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? The evidence of faithful preaching is in its reception and in its rejection. Here what we see in Israel, what Paul lays out in verses 18 Verse 19 and in verses 20 through 21, as the, his argument continues, is that this wasn't a passive refusal of the Israelites of his day of gospel proclamation. There it says in verse 18, they've heard, 
Then in verse 19, to an extent they have understood, but not in a saving way. And yet in verse 21, the Lord tells Israel, all the day long I've held up my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. How does Paul explain this refusal? This is the, 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 the leak in his argument, if you would. If this is the power of God of salvation, why did those who had the covenants, the temple, those who had the Old Testament scriptures, why are they rejecting what you have to say, Paul? Well, you can go back and read it, 9 through 11, those chapters in Romans lay out that God is doing something that is wonderful and glorious even through their stubbornness and rejection. That it is according to his divine decree that they would reject him and doing so it would open wide the door for the Gentiles. But God doesn't leave those who are Paul's kinsmen by race in that condition, that he does have good plans for them. He has a remnant for them. And also there's a day in which many would believe the gospel. So he has a wonderful plan and he's doing things according to his perfect wisdom and foreknowledge. But why did they reject? It wasn't just the plan of God. Is that their wills were not made new. They did not experience effectual calling. And because they were not born again, they did not have eyes to see the good news as good. They saw it as foolishness. It was the foolishness of the message that they rejected. And so Paul here in verse 16 appeals to Isaiah 53, 1. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Isaiah is acknowledging this message that you have given me is unbelievable unless you give someone eyes to see because the message is that the longed-for Messiah that they have been waiting for would come and rescue his people through humiliation and suffering and death on a cross. And to the Jew who demanded a sign and to the Greek who seeks wisdom, Christ crucified a stumbling block and folly. But to those who are called, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. The Apostle Paul affirmed that, yes, the unbeliever, the message of the gospel is foolishness. And so God has wedded together the method and the message. And that's part of the reason why he ordains the means of preaching to save sinners. That it's not according to human wisdom that someone would get up and open up an ancient text and that souls would be delivered from hell. If men were to conceive and to plan, they would have planned it differently. And they missed the gospel accordingly. Here we come to understand that there is a difference between the necessary condition for saving faith and the sufficient condition 
for saving faith. Oxygen is a necessary condition for there to be fire. For there to be fire, there must be some source of oxygen. But, thank goodness, that oxygen is not a sufficient cause of fire because we would be engulfed in flames because we are surrounded by oxygen right now. The preaching of God's word is the necessary condition, but it's not the sufficient. Faithful preaching oftentimes can be recognized because unbelievers do not have a taste for it and refuse it. Does not fit their palate. And so, as we consider the preaching of God's word and how might we be evaluate the faithfulness of the pulpit ministry. It is both in the, the saving of sinners, but it doesn't always to be evaluated by success. It's also in that if it's faithfully done, we should expect it to offend unbelievers to say that you are a sinner, helpless, in need of a Savior. We could go even further to say that if a pulpit ministry never offends the believer, then we got to wonder if the whole counsel of God is being preached. Because we are in the process of having our minds renewed. And we are trying to think God's thoughts after him. But we do not do that perfectly. And we won't until glory. And so as we are leaving behind old ways of thinking, the word of God should confront and rebuke us. And we should be challenged to submit and to sur surrender our ideas and plans and thoughts to the Word of God. We don't celebrate this. We don't revel in this. When faithful preaching produces rejection, it drives us to our knees to pray for sinners. And that's the example we see in this section of Romans. Paul is burdened for his people, so much so that he would be willing to give up himself if he could, that they might be saved. Theological decline and mission drift begins with a pulpit that is unfaithful. Lastly, I want us to consider the one who speaks through preaching. And this may be for some of us or maybe for many of us, this is where we really need to recalibrate our thinking concerning the preaching of God's Word. The one who speaks through preaching. There are several great descriptions of what preaching is. The doctor. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a, a wonderful, simple summation. It's logic on fire. Man, that's the kind of preaching I want to hear. Logic on fire. The 19th century Anglican Philip Brooks has a very helpful description of what preaching is. It's truth through personality. That's helpful too, that, that God has shaped the messenger and given them a message and somehow that message can be faithfully and is intended to come through the personality of the preacher in some extent. That some people resonate and connect better with some pastors and preachers and teachers than others. That's just, it seems like that's part of the way this works out. But if we're not careful, sometimes 
we get so in love with the logic or so attached to the personality that we forget who we are to listen for and to in the preaching of God's word. Let me say it another way. Um, plenty of Christians like to do this. This is a good thing. They'll go to Bible conferences or different national conferences and gatherings where they bring in the breast of the best in preachers and teachers. And I would encourage you to do that if you're able to do that. I encourage you to stream it, watch it, receive from the gifts that the Lord has given to the church. But I catch myself sometimes when someone comes back from a Christian conference, my, my immediate question sometimes wants to be, well, who's your favorite speaker? Come on, you thought of that. You thought, yeah, who's your, who's your favorite preacher? Are you, were, you a, were you a John Piper guy? Or were you a Sinclair Ferguson? What was, what was it? It's not, it's not the most helpful question. It, it shows that we need to be recalibrated. So I try to ask this. What was the message that ministered to you the most? Take our eyes off of the vessel and put them towards the Lord. The Apostle Paul is, I think, telling us more than that. He's reminding us who the true preacher is. Who is the one who speaks through preaching? It is Christ who speaks through the preaching of his word. Now, if we go back to verse 14 again, there's the question. And how are they to believe on him of whom they have never heard? The of, that preposition is supplied in English translations to try to smooth it out. Because it sounds wooden, but the proper, and it's there in your footnote in the ESV translation, in the, in the Greek, there is no preposition. It is intentional. It should read, and how are they to believe him whom they have not heard? Did you catch it? And how are they to believe on him of whom they have never heard? Or how are they to believe him whom they have not heard? Our faith is in Christ. Faith comes from Christ. That he is the fulfillment of all the scriptures promised and the, the king we needed, the priest we needed, and the prophet. And he remains the prophet to the church not just in his humiliation, but also in now his exaltation. That in his gospel, he speaks directly to sinners. Faith comes from Christ. He came as a preacher. In Luke chapter 4, there at the beginning of his public ministry, what does he do? Well, he takes the Isaiah scroll and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Christ is a preacher and he remains one today. After his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, he's talking to disciples who don't recognize him. And how does he proclaim his work and resurrection to them? Well, in this case, he didn't hold out his hands and say, look at, the, look at the holes in my hands. I'm the one who was just crucified, who is now risen from the dead. No, he went to Moses and the law 
and the prophets. Jesus himself preached Christ from the Old Testament. And what did those disciples say after they recognized who he was fully? They said, weren't our hearts strangely warmed while he opened to us the scriptures? The second Helvetic confession says, when the word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is preached and received of the faithful. Often paraphrase, the faithful preaching of the word is the word of God. Martin Luther said it this way, to preach the gospel is nothing else than Christ coming to us or bringing us to him. There's no difference between the message of the written word and the message of the living word. When we speak of Christ and preach Christ, we reference historical events. The cross and the resurrection, historical events. But we do not preach Christ as historians. See, an historian, a really good one, they've read a certain figure in history, they've read all their letters, they've read all their correspondence, they've studied everything that has left to know about them. So think of your favorite historian of Abraham Lincoln. You dive into his work, and it feels like Abraham Lincoln comes alive to you. Like you could like know what he was like, his personality, the way that he handled situations and deliberated matters, and maybe even as far as his gait and his walk or his manner of speech. The historian can make historical figures come alive. That's not the job of the preacher. My job isn't to make Jesus come alive to you because Jesus is alive, and he's still the prophet to the church and the lost, dying world, preaching his person and work. Jesus is somewhere in a glorified body and through his spirit preaching. So we don't say, well, once upon a time, Jesus told sinners, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We say, Jesus says to you today, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Think about the joy and surprise every believer will have one day when we do see Christ in his glorified flesh. We'll finally know what he looks like. And I don't care what you say, no one knows what his face looks like. We will all be surprised. But we won't be surprised at his voice. We will recognize it because we have heard it through the faithful preaching of his word. Amen. Let's ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Would you join me in prayer? This is our hope that you 
Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are alive. You are the giver of faith, the sustainer and strengthener and builder of the faith of your people. Lord, this is also terrifying that we have ignored your voice in your word. Forgive us your people if we have. I pray if there be any among us today who say, I have been hard towards the preaching of the gospel, that they would embrace Jesus as Savior. We thank you that Jesus, you are the word, you are the light of men. Increase the light that we have. And may the light shine even more so in the darkness that surrounds us. We do not fear the darkness. We know that it will not overcome us. Because the word became flesh, dwelt among us. And the word that is now in glory is still preaching the good news. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.